0: Today, I'm so happy that uh, we're going to have a double header like they used to have a double feature in the movie theater. We've got not one, count them, two good friends of mine and great arrangers and master musicians. They're going to share a little bit of that secret sauce uh, that everybody can use. We have uh, the wonderful John Altman, uh, who's a fixture in the business. Everybody knows John. Uh, Over 54 movies under his belt, countless commercials, hit records, platinum, gold, everything that you can imagine. The James Bond films, uh, Goldeneye, the new one that's coming out, No Time to Die. So many awards, Monty Python, he's worked with Diana Ross, Tina Turner. I can't count how many people uh, in different genres, which is pretty amazing. So he's going to explain a lot of details today. You're gonna enjoy it immensely. Also, on top of that, if that wasn't enough, we've got Richard Niles, the very famous arranger and author, and uh, <laughs> everybody again knows Richard. If you've ever heard one of my favorites, Swing Out Sister, uh, <laughs> do their amazing hit breakout and the rest of the album and everything else, and Paul McCartney, Ray Charles, just everyone that you can imagine, he has graced their records. And he's going to tell us what it's all about as well. And um, as an example, one of the things that they're going to do to bring these ideas forward um, is to take a very simple song that everybody knows from nursery school um, and show you the way that they put that together unbeknownst to each other so that you'll have both approaches uh, that are completely different and both excellent. And that's going to be one one of our teaching tools today. So with that, we're going to get started, and I'm going to start by turning that over to John.
1: As Sylvester said, uh, I've been very lucky, as has Richard, to um, basically to work in across the board, really, with um, movies, commercials, records, various artists, um, ranging from George Michael and Rod Stewart through to... uh, Tom Jones and Tina Turner, so obviously, you know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all to my methods and madness, but um, there are a few things that I think I can probably impart about how one, or how, certainly how I, approach writing for film, writing for television, writing for commercials, writing for different artists. and. Um, along with richard who's written a wonderful book about arranging which he's going to tell you about we can unlock some of those secrets so maybe if we hang hand over to richard and he can get us get the ball rolling the reason why i wrote this book is because for years and
2: years people have been asking me come on rich write a book about arranging and i didn't want to do it because there there are a lot of really great books about arranging and i thought well what can I contribute? And then as the years went by, I realized, well, you're not just doing one thing when you're arranging, you're applying yourself, as John said, to different artists, different fields, different concepts. And to me, because I, I came from a film background, uh, my my stepfather and mother uh, were writers, and I, I watched their process of writing films and tv scripts and i i think that music of course is is just another form of storytelling and the interesting thing about the arranging side of it is that you're telling a completely different story based on the song and the artist so uh that's kind of fun to say how do i how do i do this this way instead of doing it a different way. And as John said, it's not one size fits all. It's really uh, a matter of learning different ways to express different uh, feelings. Now, of course, there's a technical side to it. And so in my book, the whole way I wanted to present it was very simply. Uh, I think there's a lot of mystique about music and uh, about uh, arranging and composition and all of that stuff, but it's really as logical as saying the man got out of bed, he made breakfast, he went downstairs, he walked out of his door, and he stepped into the street and got hit by a bus. Now that's a story. It has a beginning and a middle and end, and I think that an arrangement has that too. And uh, so in my book, I, I first of all do the technical stuff, which is orchestration, then I go into musical stuff. Of course, I assume people have a, uh, a good basic knowledge of music theory. Uh, and I talk about voicing techniques for different instruments. Then I then I move into arranging tools. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is all the different little ideas of how you can do certain things. And then at the end, I talk about overview kind of conceptual things. And I hope that the book uh, displays uh, the whole field of being a professional arranger and composer in a a way that's easy to understand and straightforward. And one of the things that I've gotten as a comment from people, which I think is very amusing, they say, your exercises, they're completely psycho, they're crazy. You know, (laughs) nobody would ever write, you know, a a tune, an arrangement for five harmonicas. And, but that's the whole point of it. I mean, I think one of the re- reasons uh, I did that is because I learned from being put in extreme positions. Uh, and that's, that's really, when somebody asks you to do a job, the word that you say is yes. So then after you've said yes, you have to figure out how to do that, how to, how to actually fulfill what they asked for. And sometimes it's completely crazy. Sometimes it's it's straightforward. It's something you've done before. But but as John will tell you, because both he and I have a kind of pan, pan uh, whatever it is approach to, to 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 music. You know, it's not a matter of style. It's a matter of understanding those styles and being able to do X, Y, and Z, or in John's case Z. Um, so uh, so yeah. So that's the whole idea of that and. And for today, when uh, Sylvester first called me about, you know, how would you like to do something again? uh, I said, well, I'd love to do it with John because he's always fun to talk to. And also I thought, why don't we do something where we just take a simple nursery rhyme and we both arrange it and see what we come up with. And then we can explain what we did. And uh, I think we have your granddaughter to thank for the choice of, of uh, the nursery. rhyme Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And, uh, and there we are. And that's that's the whole overview
0: of what we're going to do today. Sounds good. Now, by the way, you were talking about extreme situations, you know, five harmonicas, nine tubas, that sort of thing. Can you recall um, any examples of that where you got put on the spot and had to do something totally out of bounds?
2: Okay, that's a, that's a big question, but I'm going to give you one small example of it, which is that I gave myself the brief, to write an. I did a song. I wrote a song called "Blue Movies," and it was a blues kind of, like a Stax tune or a, or something like that, an R and B kind of thing, and then, I somebody I wanted to have baritone sax lead, and then. I was talking to a friend of mine, and and uh, he said, "Well, you know, you could have, you could have five baritones," and I thought, "Oh, what fun!" And then <laughs> I had to figure out how to write for five baritones so that it would sound any good, because you you have a it's a big orchestration problem. Actually, I found very quickly, despite guys who can play high and off the horn, it's still quite a thing. So I had to work that out and. That was came from sort of my own brief and then pushing myself to do it.
1: I, I got did, it. Oh. I did, um, I actually did an arrangement for a, a very good friend of mine who was associated with uh, the Monty Python group, Neil Innes, who wrote all the music for them. And I decided, and again, it was similar to Richard, I decided that... Um, I wanted three baritone saxes, which was a similar sort of thing, Hmm. and um, I wound up playing one. I very rarely played on anything that (laughs) I arranged, because I I found, and I don't know if Richard finds the same thing or found the same thing, but if I wrote an arrangement and then played on it myself, my focus moved to, am I playing well? Maybe I could play that better. And as soon as that becomes your focus, you lose <laughs> sight of the overview. You're dead. So on that particular occasion, I I decided to play the barit one of the three baritones and play the baritone solo because it was my vision of what the track should be. If the other two baritone players had turned up, they would have probably gone, What what on earth is this? Why have you written <laughs> some three baritone Exactly. And- Again, if I can raise a point about another film I did that was set in the 1930s in the UK. Um, I had in my head the sound of uh, a very famous English film star and variety artist called George Formby who um, played a banjo-lele, which is slightly obscure. It's a combination of ukulele and banjo. And I decided for my score, I would have three of them, plus <laughs> acoustic guitar. So I booked three Um Two of the guys had never seen one, let alone held one, and had to go and rent them from a specialist shop to, to do the sound. <laughs> but it was exactly the sound that was right for the film, I think. You know, it, it worked really, really well. And... Our mutual friend Mitch Dalton was one one of the banjolele players. Wow!
3: <laughs> Great.
1: I I used to do a lot of commercials with a particular advertising agency, and um, the man at the agency one one of the creative directors made a habit of finding obscure pieces of music, <laughs> and he dug up Albrechtsberger's concerto. For Jews' Harp and Orchestra. And Albrecht Berger was, was um, Beethoven's composition teacher. Mm. And if you hear this, it's, there is a version on YouTube. It's the most extraordinary thing you'll ever hear because it basically the orchestra goes and then you get boingy, 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 boingy. <laughs> and, it, and, of course, there was no score, so I transcribed it. And it seemed to be a tuned Jew's harp. And our percussionist came in. This is way before synthesizers. And the first thing he said was, I have no idea how he's pitching that those notes. We don't know how, how he did it. We have no clue. So what we did was we fed... We, we recorded what the normal sound was, leaving gaps. And then in the gaps, we put in, we slowed the tape down so that the, 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 the jew's harp sped up and we dropped in the notes that were missing. And the finished <laughs> product was amazing. <laughs>
0: Richard, you were saying?
2: Yeah, so we both arranged Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." I've made a little video up of the piece and the score going by and I've given you the piece twice not only because it's only a minute and a half or something like that but also because it's really hard to see scores written on a computer to see the whole thing so the second time through I've I've focused on little bits of the score. So let's watch that now and then I'll attempt to speak coherently about it. probably wondering, what did I do there? And I have got a PDF that you can download which explains all this, but I'm going to go through it. My first thought when I approached this was what am I going to do with this that's kind of able to show a lot of different uh, compositional and arranging techniques? So the first thing I thought was twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's seven syllables. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So as babyish as it is to think that way, my idea was that I would do something in seven. And so I ended, I actually didn't do the whole thing in seven. I ended it in seven, eight. And you'll notice I ended it with seven bars of seven, eight, because I'm a mathematical type guy who never understood anything beyond two and two is four. But I managed to do... The seven, so that, so now I knew I wanted something kind of up and groovy in seven. So now I knew that and I had this, I immediately had this rhythm in my head. So anyway, that was before I had anything, I had that. So then I knew that I wanted the first section to be contrasting. So I wanted it to be floaty well, that's the best way to describe it. Um, there's a seemingly rubato first bar, and then you get the little thing. A lot happens in a short amount of time. You know, you could extend this piece to, obviously, five minutes, and it would make even more sense, but nevertheless. So the first bar is no time at all, seemingly, and then it goes into a six, but it's 6-4, so it's much slower than the 7-8 thing. It's now one 2 so now I had more time to do stuff and it, more time to kind of give a floating kind of feel. But there, there's still a groove in the baseline of it. If you look, there's still a, a groove, but it's a more, uh, the baseline on that is is more stretched apart. So then I I had a little laid back kind of feel that I Achieved with the bass and the percussion that I chosen to use, uh, and in the spaces I I would enabled myself to make little comments somewhere. I knew I would I gave myself space. Now that I had six four and I had a riff, now I had to create. I had to do the melody somewhere. Well, of course, I was not. Uh, immediately going to make it easy for myself. So what I did was, I, what I call decomposed the melody, but I kind of just, I gave you the melody because that was the requirement, but I also gave you not exactly the melody. So in a, so it goes, instead of twinkle, twinkle, it goes to uh, ba, ba, ba da da, ba, da ba. and you can see that in the brass. If you go to the brass, there they are okay so they're going za up and then the ba-ba is in the woodwinds uh anyway so there there you've got twinkle twinkle and of course I harmonized them willfully and uh sort of like a a, a baby on various wrong drugs you know I just cho- chose voicings that I liked it was there wasn't any kind of particular theory behind it but, but just Uh, having some fun with different voicings that I liked, that I thought would provide this spacey kind of feel. Um, So now that the melody had been decomposed, I left huge gaps between the melody. As you can see right here on this page, you've got do-do-ba-ba-ba, and then I've got space to do here, I'll talk about this in a minute, the gratuitous blues lick, and then I also didn't wanna do a whole different section that was up above the world so high. Instead, I took that part of the melody and I inserted it into the other melody. So it goes da 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 and then it goes up above the world so high. So you'll see those. So yeah, so you can see that there's like, like a diamond in the sky and I didn't know what the words were at the end. So I said, as I said, it's very high, but I didn't I didn't know what the real words were. And then, the the seven eighth section allowed me to you to finish off the melody of how I wonder what you are. So then what you are became a a repeated uh kind of montuno that went out, you know, what you, ah, ba, 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 da, 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 what you ah, da, da, ba, ba, da, da, what you. So that's what that is. In fact, it would be really fun to do this as a vocal uh choir arrangement. I I would love to uh, Get uh, our friend Andrew Kessler to sing all this, but uh, so that that was what that was all about. The sixteenth note figure da du dub da 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 is. You can see if you look at the piano part, uh, you can see how that's actually harmonized with the different instruments that I chose for that. There it is. But there it's written out. It's almost as if I've given you a, a kind of a, a cheat sheet. So what are those little voicings I've done? Well many of the voicings are what I would call symmetric diminished scale type voicings. But I've also thrown in a few straight ahead voicings in fourths just because I thought of the little melody that is on the top of that. And then I just harmonized it kind of using those kinds of uh, feels. I mean, the fact that there's a riff going on, uh, it's not particularly tonal, but it's not, utterly atonal at at all either. So you could look at each one of those voicings and see what they are, uh, but they're chosen purely for the sound of the voicings rather than, and the kind of uh, emotive quality of the voicing rather than a tonal, you know, it's certainly not done in any mechanical voicing uh, technique. You know, and it's an interesting. Uh, the melody actually starts the what you are, the what you is before the beat. So on the seven, on the seven eight, you get the melody is across the bar line, which I also like to do if I can. The next question we'll ask is why did you do it with a orchestra? Well, I don't know. I just felt that it was a better way. I, I felt it gave me a lot of possibilities to do it kind of like an orchestral film score, but I really wanted ethnic percussion. I knew that I wanted that for the feel that that could give. However, the big problem is, you know, we're doing this with Sibelius. Now, I prefer the orchestral sounds on Note Performer. Um, they're way better than the normal uh, Sibelius Library. But the note performer library, if I'm not mistaken, and it may just be my version of note performer, but it has a very tiny amount of uh, percussion sounds, and it just didn't have enough variety. So I went back to using the um, the, the normal sort of Sibelius sounds because it had more percussion. And in terms of ultimate quality, I didn't care that much that the string sounds are not as good on, on uh the normal Sibelius library uh, as they are on the uh, No Performer. And I also found that I I didn't want to use drums at all, but I finally found that I had to. And to get the kind of sound that I wanted, I I did the drum set, but without a snare, because I've got the, I used the side drum as the snare because I like the sound of it better. It sounds, that side drum sounds to me like a high-pitched kind of, uh, uh, kind of Harvey Mason-ish kind of, Snare, but anyway, I—that's I, how I created that. And then there's all kinds of. The names on the percussion are kind of babyish too, because they don't really—they aren't really those particular instruments, but they sound a little bit ethnic and fun, and so I use them. Now, the bar six, the gratuitous blues lick. Uh, it's in the clarinets and in the uh, the whole string section is is doing it. The thing is, I've got a fairly rigid structure, as you can see. My thinking was everything had to be justified. I love to justify everything and have a a concept that's called composing. But at the same time, I I, I feel that it's not human unless you deviate from it a lot. And I remember when I was um, lucky enough to study with Herb Pomeroy years and years ago uh, at Berkeley, he used to show us Ellington scores and Strayhorn scores and he'd say, well, this is the technique they're using. But, and I'd say, well, but what's that thing? Oh, he just threw that in. And I kept hearing that a a bunch of times. Oh, he just threw that in. And then we'd look at other scores of other composers and, you know, mostly it was very brilliantly thought out, but occasionally they just did something for the fun of it. So that that's what the gratuitous blues lick is. And also, I have a kind of a feeling that blues gives a blues element. Without that, there's no fun. So I threw that in. I just it was just a a willful choice of a musical baby. Um, the other thing to talk about is the big finish. Well, the the song began, the the piece began very softly, PP. And obviously, I wanted to end it ff. That was, you know, an obvious thing that didn't require too much thought. So then I figured out that I wanted something that was kind of rising in nature. So I used a Lydian mode thing. This is F Lydian, and it's da da. And then I did a counter rhythm over the six four that went. And and it just kind of it's a circular kind of thing that leads us to that ending. And even though the melody of that section is descending, it's yeah. And I and I wrote the twinkle there because what I was saying was I wanted a, to be a four-note phrase. So I went twinkle, 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 twinkle. So that's what that is. And the stri- the uh, flutes and the uh, doing that high little trill that's just for fun. And to add to the rising. Feel of it, and then of course, it's the last bar is the only unison in the whole piece when the whole band just goes Wr-rap! and uh, <laughs> so yeah, tonic unison. You can't beat it. So, and now the the floor is open to questions and uh, any psychiatrists you want to talk to me.
0: Well, Richard, first question. Um, you know, Elmer Bernstein used to make a big thing out of tempos, particularly, you know, with the film scores. But in your case, when you conceived of the idea, um, how did you decide whether it's going to be up-tempo, slow, medium? What was the first thought?
2: The first thought was the first idea musically that came into my head was the rhythm of the seven. So I had I had that groove going in my head, and I thought, well, I got to get to that, and the way to get to it, since it's groovy and up, was to do something slow, and then, so then, I had the tempo, and so I said, what could work at that tempo, and then, obviously go one, two, three. So and that began da 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 got
0: it.
2: So that, so I had my that that's how I decided on tempo. But you're absolutely right. Um, the choice of tempo is a super important thing, and uh, it can make the difference between a really beautifully written piece of music sounding great or terrible. And I I say this a lot to my students that uh, it's not a race. You know, the tempo, it should be the right tempo to make the musical point that you're making. So, uh, great question and that's what I was thinking.
0: Glenn, do we have any questions from the floor?
4: Oh, here's one that just popped in from John Keller. Uh, Thanks for showing us your incredible arrangement. Uh, in the last bar why does the snare drum start to build up later than the other instruments
2: because if if it starts with it it has nowhere to go but yeah it just if it starts without it then it has somewhere to go that's bigger it's a, it happens in maybe a, a second and a half so it's a kind of a minor point but i just had it start a little later, so there would be starting here and then going up. It's just a dynamic choice.
0: Great. I see Uh, a question from Liz.
2: Okay, how how wonderful. Um, why
4: did the bass and contrabass clarinets get buried in the percussion on the
2: score setup? Well, you mean buried, uh, from what we can hear or buried? I I mean, look, the thing is, I, mixing this thing, I did the best that I could. I, I would, I would dearly love to uh, have mixed it, but what I did was the bass. But I had the the contrabass clarinet and the bass clarinet split up the line. So, so as you can see, it goes dot dot, and then the uh, bass clarinet takes up the next two notes, and then the contrabass takes up those notes. It's a it's a composite rhythm created by those two instruments, but the acoustic bass is doing both of them. I wish you could have heard, uh, I I wish I could have made the bass clarinet and contrabass clarinet uh, louder so that you could hear them, but there's a lot going on, and uh, you know, this this, this isn't a sophisticated mix. I just did the best I could with Sibelius, but yeah, that was the idea, and I'm glad you pointed that out, because I forgot to mention that, that it's a it's a composite rhythm of the bass, and if you play that on its own, it's kind of fun. Um, I've done that with musicians a lot, breaking up things, um, and uh, after they get upset with me, they they enjoy doing it because it's it's hard to hold on to your place in the in the uh, overall uh, function of time.
4: Um, John John Hinchey has asked me to mention your wonderful book, His Words, The Invisible Artist. Oh, thank you. Question, do you write directly into Sibelius, or do you start with idea sketch and then explode it to orchestra, or do you write as you go?
2: Very good question. I I always try to write some kind of sketch for myself because obviously it's, I mean, some people are geniuses, and they can just start writing and write to the end of the page, and that's their piece, but I've, I've never found that that's a very good idea, and even if I write, I don't know if I've got any pieces of that paper here. I'm just going to look. Well, I have these little tiny score pads that are yellow, and they came from, you know, one of those LA places like I don't know what they're called, Alpheus Music or Judy thing, Judy Green, is it? Anyway, I I have these little scores, and sometimes I'll just scribble down, okay, it's going to open with this, and I I give myself a kind of a, uh, it's just a kind of a, a general sketch, not even notes sometimes. I mean, if there's a rhythm or a melody that occurs to me, I'll I'll write it in, but I just say, you know, I want this big and brassy, I want this slow and in seven, I want this, you know, whatever, I just, but I, I, oh, I never start writing without having some little piece of paper with something, and sometimes it's more exaggerated. But then when I go into this, into the page, I I love the the immediate um,
0: feedback that you can get from hearing exactly what you've written. Say, Richard, um, since our teaching format today is to contrast one against the other, let's pull up John's first, take a few questions there, and then take some mixed questions. Great. All right, John. Sounds great. But, uh, Tell us about it.
1: What I did, um, I decided that I would just run the whole thing through, you know, with a key change, basically a time and a half almost. Um, then what I wanted to do was make the melody exactly as one imagined that one would hear "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." So I did. I I didn't try to. Um, stagger it, I didn't try to mess about with it, I just, just kept it as it is, um, basically for strings and um, for Celeste, and uh, added an oboe for colouring at certain points. Um, what I wanted to do as well was to reharmonize the first part quite dr- dramatically, switch into a less dramatic harmonisation just before the key change, so that it was still reharmonized, but as a more obvious re than the first four or five bars. And then once the key change happened, to, to, to write a more conventional re So there were three stages, as it were, of treating it, Um, first of all, as I say, with um, what I set myself to do, basically, was whenever possible, I wanted to move in semitones, either up or down. So some of them are descending semitones, some of them are are ascending. Um, Then what I wanted to do with the harp was to ghost the melody on the fourth eighth note and I have to remember to say eighth note rather than quavers I think in quavers and crotchets and uh, minims and semibreves, but I have have to refocus on eighth notes and sixteenth notes and you'll see in the first um, well, basically my idea for the first four bars was that I would ghost the melody all the way down. But when it comes to bar four, on the third eighth note in bar four, I found that the going down to the D on the dominant chord on the harp didn't work as well as going up to the G of the dominant chord. So I changed that. Um, it's sort of what Richard was saying about, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll throw in an idea from nowhere that completely takes away what, what you intended to do. I also intended at the start to um, start the double basses on the uh, E, descending down to the D-sharp, to the D, and then down to the G. Again, I found that the tonic seemed to work better in the basses. I already had the E in the celli. Um I, again, deliberately left the, beat, the first beat empty um, to give a bit of air around, around the melody. And again, that's a deliberate ploy. Um, every arranging trick that I use, actually, all the way through, and I I don't know whether one wants to call them tricks or or what one wants to call them, but they were all sort of deliberately done. So, um, things like leaving the first beat clear and then filling it up later in the arrangement, um, switching to the the pizzicato, celli and basses in... uh, just before the key change, a couple of bars before the key change on bar seven, and then going to a more conventional harmonization when we move into the E-flat section, but also putting in some surprises, as it were, by finishing up on a C minor 6th 9th uh, on the Celeste, to give it a sort of a, not not the obvious finish that one would think that one would get just, just to make it a bit quirky and whimsical. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to basically approach it as if it were a, a miniature story, like, as Richard said, about um, having a beginning, a middle and an end, and staging it all the way through. I've just, I've gone slightly differently obviously from the way Richard went and I had no idea what he'd done as he had no idea what I'd done so um it's interesting that one can have those sort of different types of approach to it um I don't know if you want to play it again or if you want to sort of go into details I'd like to play it I'd like to play it again
0: but first I want to ask you the same question that I asked Richard which is how did you arrive at your tempo? I, I sang, I
1: sang the piece to myself, basically, and that's just the way it came out, right? Yeah, I thought, what's that? That's going to be about a hundred, hundred and two, you know. So I, that that was what I did. You got and it. I,
0: got it. Well, this this is great. You know, one one without talking to each other. You know, one came out uh, up-tempo, the other one came up kind of medium to slow, and this is great. So let's play it a second time, and then let's take some more questions from the floor, okay? Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Glenn, let's take a few questions from the floor on this.
4: Absolutely. Um, John Goldberg asked, I could swear I heard a resolution from D sharp to E in bar four, but that's not in the score. Was that just a trick of the sound?
1: I think so, yes. I mean, I, 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 I do like um, playing about with ambiguity, which is why I use a lot of um, and I find that Also, when I write film scores, there's a lot to be gained from using something like, uh, let's say, for example, to make it simplified, a G major seventh with a flat five, which gives you a complete ambiguity. In fact, that whole section of bar seven and eight, it is a D sharp seven flat five down to a C sharp seven flat five down to an A, D sharp major seven flat five, I should say, down to an A major seven flat five, and then sort of adjusts to to basically the B flat with with um a a raised raise ninth. So it it it's it's all deliberate ploys to to, to keep the ambiguity going, if you like. What I do find is that, that that ambiguity does imply other things, which is also very interesting.
4: Uh, we have a question from Bobby Jasinski. Um, what was the thought process from C major to E flat major? Uh, it ju- uh, just a strict traumatic mediant? That was the end of the question.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just thought it would, it would sound good by changing key and and pushing itself up and i also wanted to make that that contrast even more obvious that that the the harmonizations that, that start out slightly off center and odd then so become a bit more normalized and then become very normalized but the emphasis sh- shifts and it's this normalization that is sometimes thrown off by some odd um, reharmonization thrown in. Igor
4: Kogan just asked, uh, could you please elaborate on your reharmonization techniques?
1: Yes. I mean, what, what I was basically trying to do was, um, for example, as as I said, you using the notions of flat fives and also using the idea of chromaticism, uh, What I tried to do as much as possible was to, if I had some sort of change, for example, from bar one, where where you've got the D sharp in the root, then then you go to the G. It's basically the same chord structure on going from the E E, E flat, sorry, D sharp seven flat five to the G minus G, seventh flat five in the next bar. So I I was trying as much as possible. What I, I did was I sat at the piano rather than and wrote on manuscript and I tried out all the different permutations. So some of them just didn't sound particularly interesting, but some of them I thought, oh, that that, that sounds... Different, you know, I'll go with that. So, they they might have broken the mold of what I said I would do, but um, in the long run, I think they sound they sounded more sort of con- congruent, as it were, than than the not. Well, it sounds great. By the way, was That's that sure. your usual process
0: to go from the um, the pad score pad to the computer? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I, 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 have a, I have a brief comment. Yes. Can anybody hear me? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, the key change to E-flat, it's something that I've obviously, if you look at key changes over the years, a lot of times that minor third thing, uh, either a minor third up or down, seems to work very well. Number one, because there are some common tones that you can use for the modulation. But also, I've always felt that a minor third away is, makes it the same chord. So for me, E flat is C. And the reason for that is that C7 is E flat seven. Because speaking of the symmetric diminished scale, it's the same scale. So that's, to me, and I may be completely, you know, inter- you know, educationally wrong, but to me, there's a relationship between dominant chords that are a minor third away, and and they're the same chord. E flat seven is is uh, C seven, and A seven is C seven. So then, why not say that if you're going to modulate in this way, it sounds so beautifully natural your modulation there, partly because it's a minor third modulation, and maybe. Subconsciously, there's this kind of uh, underneath it all diminished thought in, going on in in yeah. my, that it is. And another thing I wanted to say about your piece that I that I love is the fact that you have retained even with your unusual harmony, which is very lovely in the way that it's very subtly done and uh, you haven't had to use a mallet like I did but uh, <laughs> but uh, what I like about it is also with the instrumentation that you've chosen it's got still got the childlike quality of your granddaughter about it because with the celeste you know and the, I mean how can it not sound pretty and sweet
1: yes i mean that, that that's what i wanted to do was keep that element very much to the fore. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to take it anywhere else. I, I could have done, of course. But
0: now, John, excuse me. I'm curious about one thing. I know you have a major book release coming out in February. Yeah. Does the new book does this include some of these arranging techniques and tricks and so forth, or is this primarily? all of your amazing stories (laughs) with the people that you work with over so many years that's going to keep everybody on the edge of their seat. First of all tell us the name of the new book.
1: The book is called Hidden Man and um, it's, it's basically my autobiography. So there isn't really much technical stuff in it you know because it's aimed at you know people who want to know about what was Freddie Mercury like or (laughs) <laughs> you know, how'd you get on with George Michael, and, uh, what Well, that
0: just means you'll have to have a second volume, but this one is going to tell the behind-the-scenes stories of, uh, what, how the sausage really got made. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> but, um... That, that's an in-story in for anybody who wants to read it. It's a very funny story, actually. But, All right, well, we'll be we'll be looking for Hidden Man. And,
4: and um, I do want to point out that Jeff Kellum has got it in the chat, the uh, email address on how to get it already. So you can pre-order, I bet.
1: The interesting thing, I mean, I, I do go into my thought processes um, on, as I said, God on the Rocks, which was the 1930s film, because apart from being Minnie Driver's first ever appearance when she was 17, it it does sort of indicate why I made certain choices about how I wrote the score. For example, using the banjo Um in film, there's a little nursery rhyme that the nanny sings to the young girl. So I made that the, the bridge of my main theme. Mm-hmm. So... you. As Richard said earlier on, you know, you do think about how do I tell the story of what's going on in the movie or whatever the project is myself. And that's the way I I chose to do it. Let me just um, also
0: raise a question, and this one is uh, for John. Okay, John, you you were saying that you use this approach with um, all of your films. Have you ever had an occasion where your conceptual idea that you presented to a director, et cetera, uh, turned out to be like light years away from what he had to, had in mind? Where you had to turn it around, not just musically but conceptually, change the whole thing.
1: Now that actually brings up a very interesting point, which is that in the three major movie sequences that I've written and also all the records that I've arranged for, I've never, ever had to present a demo. Ever. And that, of course, has changed now. I mean, we're going back to... For
0: movies in particular, yes.
1: We're going back long ago when you just write something and show up in the studio and you maybe play a theme on the piano to people who have no idea what, what they're listening to. But I did do one movie where... I wrote uh, a particular cue and the director said to me, you're inside the action and you should be outside it. And I had to really think about what he meant. And I I decided that what he actually meant was I should take a very objective, detached view of what I'm watching and write something that went right across it, and had no real sort of, you know, I wasn't tugging at heartstrings. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't saying, "Look at this, look how sad it is." But I was sitting back like a, a, a narrator, a third-person narrator, sort of. Um, I got it. Sitting back, and immediately I did that. He, you know, his face lit up and said, "That's exactly what what I was getting at." So but, you
0: you interpret you interpreted his words into musical thought.
1: Yeah, but got it. Generally, I I did find that most people I worked with over the years, because because synth sounds are so appalling, you know, way back in the eighties. Oh yeah. That,
0: um,
1: people were prepared just to think, well, I I've hired you, I trust you, I'll see you at the session, and I'll be knocked out when I hear a. A big string section or a brass section or a big band arrangement or something like that. Right. Rich?
2: Yeah, if I can comment on that, I think, John, you'll agree that uh, one of the reasons why people seem to demand demos much more today, and I mean, I'd say for the last 10 years or so, maybe more, uh, and never in the Never in my end, even when I first started out and I was an untried kid in London uh, of 24, you know, people were just willing to trust me. They'd say, Oh, you can write for strings? Yeah, great. Come on in. Be there. This is the tune. Be there next Saturday. I mean, I was amazed at how people trusted me then. But then later on, I mean, no one ever asked for demos in the old days. And maybe that is because of the different ways that have the technology has involved, uh, I guess, producers, movie directors uh, in music where they think that, well, you know, I can do this, I can push this button, I can create this thing, I, 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 I should be involved, you know, and so they are more willing today to buy a dog and bark themselves, which is an English expression, and I think you can all figure out what that means. Uh, so, I think it results in worse music pretty much all the time. There's nothing wrong at all with what John said, where the director said, well, this piece, you know, this part of it, I think maybe you should zig instead of you zag. You know, that's great. Of course, you want, you're you're there to please the director's vision. Uh Or indeed, uh, if you're making a record, a pop record with a producer, you're there to give them, they say, I don't want it to be so funky, or I don't want it to be so, so uh this or that or the other, that's okay, that's fine. But to completely want to second guess you, then, you know, then, of course, I, I believe we would all say, well, just hire somebody else, because you don't really want what I do. I've been lucky, and I think John has had the same experience of being hired because you're getting John Altman. So let's, I really want, I don't want what my ideas are. I can't think of as good ideas as John Altman. So I'm a director, so good, let him do it. So that's what I would do if if I had brains and I was a director or a record producer. But at the same time, you know, I think maybe technology has impinged on people's thought process so they think well anybody can put a track together because i can just get a bunch of loops and i can get this and do that and press this button. well you know so i should have a say in this so you know there's
5: there's my rant over with let me just play this video because it it really applies to what we're talking about i feel bad for young composers coming up who believe that the way it's supposed to be is you're supposed to give the producers and a whole room full of people synth mock-ups so they can tell you oh, it should be louder, it should take out the thing. I just think it's horrible. And, and uh, um, there's a, I, I was, was talking to a young producer once who, who loved that system. And he was telling me how he got to tell the composer, this scene should be more exciting and this scene should be funnier. And, and I said to him, you know what the problem is? You believe that a score sits outside the movie, looks down on it and comments on it. A score should be inside the movie reflecting the characters and the emotions and the feelings. It shouldn't be saying, hey, laugh here. It should be saying, this character is laughing here. And that's a fundamental difference in how I think a lot of young producers are approaching music. And it's just wrong. And the the technology has allowed them to have this opportunity. And I think that they have turned composing into something that it shouldn't be which is an you know, audition process for people who don't know what they're doing sorry i <laughs> <laughs> that's great
1: Love thanks, that, for, guy. thanks for playing that um milton I, I, I went um for a meeting uh many years ago with a director very well-known director And um, he said, I like working, this will date me, I like working with Michael Kamen. And Michael was someone I I wrote for as well. And I said, oh, why do you like working with Michael? He said, "Uh, because he lets me write some of the cues. He said, well, he gives me a note on the synthesizer. And whenever I feel something should happen, I press the note and it makes a noise at the right moment. (laughs) to do that movie the craze (laughs) that is too
0: funny well john and richard let me ask you this might be a good time to take a break if you guys are in the mood
3: Times you have a very unladylike way of running out. You're on this date with me, and the pickings have been lush, but yet before. This evening is over You might give me
2: Niles here to tell you about my podcast and my YouTube channel, Radio Richard. Now, the best things in life are free, people say, but are they really? I mean, the internet, for instance, you're paying for the service. Now, exercise, everybody says exercise is free. Well, no, you're paying with your sweat. But subscribing to Radio Richard is absolutely free. It costs you nothing. Not only that, we actually pay you with thought-provoking interviews and performances with amazing award-winning artists. Where else can you get my interviews with the greatest producers in music history? People like 80s innovator Trevor Horn, Arif Martin from Aretha Franklin to Chaka Khan, Shel me, producer of the brilliant sound of The Who and the Kinks, and Jerry Wexler, the man who was a co-founder of Atlantic Records and produced some of the greatest hits in history. So go ahead. Please like, share, and subscribe. You'll help keep this podcast alive and give the world better production values. Radio Richard. It's absolutely free. Radio Richard.